This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the book of Joshua. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. When last we left you in chapter six of Joshua, we were discussing the end of Rahab's romance. Of course, we didn't know for sure that Salmon, the man she married, was one of the spies, but we kind of hope he was because it is a great love story. And who doesn't love a good love story? Well, we do. And we know that Rahab, the prostitute, was saved by grace just like us, through faith and given a place of honor in the Lord's plan for another provision of divine grace, the opportunity for us to be saved from our sin through Jesus Christ. And in chapter seven, we pivoted from Rahab, the righteous Canaanite, to Achan, the unrighteous Israelite. It was a sharp contrast, and Rahab knows little of God, but makes the right choices. Achan knows much of God, but makes the wrong choices, many of them. Yeah. (laughs) Chapter eight, after a crushing defeat, God encourages Joshua with the promise of victory. This is the story of the conquest of Ai. Joshua chapter eight. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up to attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. All right. Last episode, when they attacked Ai, they were defeated. They were run off um, and 36 men died. This time, when Israel attacked Ai, we know for sure that God has given Israel permission to fight and that they will be victorious. This battle will also be different from the battle of Jericho because the harassment is limited against I. They can carry off some plunder. The people are allowed to take plunder and livestock. Had Achan waited until this battle, he would have been given the gift of plunder rather than having to steal it. Another difference is that this battle is a surprise ambush rather than a seven-day warning of marching around the city blowing horns. God is a great strategist, keeping the enemy guessing. Continuing on in verse three. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and set them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. I and those with me will advance on the city. And when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say, they are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off. And they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night with the people. All right. This is not the first mention of Ai. And we have to remember this, that Abraham had been to the promised land way before this and that he had written all this down in Genesis and that the people would have heard this. So for them, this is super special. They're like finally in the place of promise that they had heard about in the books that Moses had written. The first mention of I is in Genesis 12. Verse four. So Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, 
Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree, Morhat Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, Abraham went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So think about Israel. They're lying in the dark, waiting for dawn. Um, and the coming battle that they're going to do this ambush on I. And I, I have to imagine as they're kind of nervous, because who sleeps before a battle? Nobody, I'm sure. Surely someone must have had the thought, isn't this so cool that we are in exactly the spot that Abraham had been promised this very land? And someone else would have said, and I heard a priest say that Abraham built an altar to the Lord here. And dude, I heard he called on the name of the Lord for the first time right here where we're laying. I think they would have said, brah. Bro, yeah. Hey, bro. Yeah. And, 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 and man, can you believe we get to be the ones to take this promised land for our forefather, Abraham? It would have been a big deal. They would have known I, and they would have been really excited. Yeah. So where we just read over it, and exactly. if we didn't know any better, exactly. but for them, it was very symbolic. This it moment. was pivotal. They were, they were bringing that promise that they had heard for hundreds of years into fruition. All right. Let's find out what's going to happen. Verse 10, early the next morning, Joshua mustered his army and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So the soldiers took up their positions with the main camp to the north and the city and the ambush to the west of it. That night, Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arba. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled toward the wilderness. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, hold out toward Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out toward the city the javelin that was in his hand. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it quickly and set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising up into the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. The Israelites who had been fleeing toward the wilderness had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from it, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. Those in ambush also came out of the city against them so that they were caught in the middle with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives, but they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites turned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day. 
all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of the city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole and left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. The destruction of Ai was a conquest according to God's commands, and that's why it was successful. It was also the fulfillment of one of God's promises. Unlike the last battle, it was picture perfect. The people followed Joshua's instructions, including the killing of 12,000 people and bringing the king to Joshua. And Joshua followed God's instructions, including keeping a javelin raised, similar to when Moses had to keep his arms up in the battle against the Amalekites in Exodus 17. And Joshua killed the king in an ancient Near East method by putting it at a pole, which sounds really horrible, but it was supposed to be a very public display. Yeah, exactly. The covenant renewed at Mount Ebal is what we're going to read next. So Moses provided specific details for this ceremony to the people in Deuteronomy 27. And Joshua is going to execute this covenant renewal with excellence as usual. He's going to build the altar. He writes out the book of law on uncut stones. He offers sacrifices. And then the people recite blessings and curses. Now you can read all of the blessings and curses for yourself in Deuteronomy 27, starting in verse 9. Or you can listen to season 5, episode 13. Continuing on in Joshua, chapter 7, verse 30. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it, they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood on the front of Mount Gerizim and half of them on the front of Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. So we talked about this a lot in last season. This would have been a really incredible scene and probably something we should do today, actually, because the the area, you can Google it, is kind of a valley set in the middle of two very sloping, slow sloping mountains. And the people were to gather some on one side on one mountain and some on the other overlooking the valley. And then the priests would stand in the middle and they would recite these things and certain people had to respond. Half of the tribes that stood on the one half 
um, and said the blessings and the other half that stood on the other mountain recited the curses and it created like an amphitheater of people responding mm-hmm. to each other on either side. Well, and it was probably really echoey too. Oh, so yeah. it was probably you could a hear. really interesting thing to hear with the echoing and the amplified sounds of all their voices. Exactly. And if you were a child, you would never forget this moment mm-hmm. and, and you'd probably remember the words and they probably talked about it often mm-hmm. after that. So the tribes on Mount Gerizim were to echo the blessings, like I said, and these tribes were Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And there are probably reasons for why these were chosen. We talked about that, like I said, in season five, episode 13. I'm not going to go into it again, but it's kind of cool. The tribes of Mount Ebal were to echo the curses, and they were Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Aphtali, the lesser tribes, if that gives you a hint while they're executing the curses. And let me just tell you, there were a lot more curses than blessings. So go listen. The reading and repetition or echoing of the blessing and curses was a dramatic and effective way for the people to make a public commitment to the covenant that they would never forget. Because remember, they're renewing the covenant in this ceremony. That's the purpose. The priests read some stuff that they're renewing, and then they go over the blessings and curses. Blessings if they keep the covenant, curses if they don't. They don't want, God doesn't want them to ever forget it. Now, the covenant promised hope in the valley between the blessings and curses. So the Ark of the Covenant and the priests would have stood in the valley, and that was the hope. If they could keep the covenant and choose God, there was hope that they would always live in the blessing of the promised land and God would reside with them. As they looked at that ark that was the holy seat of God, they would be thinking, yeah, we want to keep God with us. I mean, this is what we've got to do. All right, moving on to chapter nine. By now, word has spread and the Canaanites all know that the Israelite invasion is a real threat. They They're have, back to their hearts melting in fear, Exactly. Right? <laughs> They've knocked off two major cities. Some Canaanite nations respond with strategic alliances amongst themselves and others with deceptive tricks. Chapter 9. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan had heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire east of the Mediterranean Sea as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. The strategic alliances occur several more times, but never with success. So not much is said right here, but we're going to cover more of them. The Gibeonites, however, decide a new tactic is called for. They had heard about the fall of Egypt the fall of the two Amorite kings before they ever got to the promised land, the fall of Jericho, and now I. And they realized that combat was not going to lead to survival. So they decide to get creative. Now, the Gibeonites were non-Semitic people. In other words, not from Noah's son, Shem, the chosen line of Christ. They descended from Noah's son, Ham, through Canaan, who is the father of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvadites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. A bunch of these, we read, are trying to unite in attack against Israel. The Gibeonites are descendants of two of those tribes, the Hivites and the Amorites. And therefore, 
the Gibeonites are definitely on the harem hit list. They know that if they're invaded, they're all going to die. They lived in a strategic area of Israel, eight miles northwest of Jerusalem. So they know they're really a target. And it appears they are a different sort. For unlike the other Ites nations, you know, the Hivites, Jervites, all those people, they don't seem to have a king. And perhaps the collaboration of the people, in, rather than having, you know, a um, mm-hmm. authoritative king, contributed to their creativity. They were very clever and proved that survival without bloodshed was possible if you used your head. This is the story of the Gibeonite trick and treaty. Verse three. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. When they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey and go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now, see how dry and moldy it is? And these wineskins, they were filled new. But see how cracked they are? And our clothes and sandals are worn out by this very long journey. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let them live. The leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. And there it is, that one little mistake. Did Israelites inquire (laughs) of the Lord. Lord. Darn. So the Israelites were suspicious of the Gibeonites. They even asked them, perhaps you live near us so we can't make a treaty. Because remember, if they live near them, they are Canaanites and they can't make a treaty with the Canaanites. But the Gibeonites when they were asked that, just kind of leaned into their charade. They were so shrewd. They did not mention the battles that Israel had won inside Canaan. They only mentioned, the, which were, of course, the battles of Jericho and Ai. They only mentioned the battles Israel had won outside of Canaan against Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. So they were totally playing up the pretense that they too were from the out side of the promised land and therefore not under the harem. And so credit for such a convincing performance must go to the Gibeonites. Their costumes, props, and acting won the day. The tattered clothes look convinced the Israelites that the Gibeonites were not from around here. And while the Hittites, Jebusites, and all the other ites were doing calisthenics and sharpening swords for battle, The Gibeonites were holding auditions for men to act as poor foreigners and molding bread. 
Joshua and the leaders of Israel were totally duped into believing that the Gibeonites were not Canaanites, but rather the neighbors from a land outside of the promised land. As a result, the Israelites enter into a Canaanite treaty that was strictly forbidden in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. And the Gibeonites were related to the Hivites and the Amorites. So they're in that group. Now, perhaps we can admit here that Joshua Henry Cavill has just one <laughs> little fault. He is very gullible. Nowhere is it recorded that he asked the name of their tribe or where their land was. Maybe Joshua was taken in by their deference to God and humble attitude. Because how could Israel deny a treaty to such pathetic people when they honor God and want peace? Or was Joshua just distracted by this coalition of kings preparing to attack Israel? Who knows? This trick is a great example of how the enemy has many schemes and creativity, not force, can win the day. I think it also had something to do with him not consulting God. Yes, definitely. All right. Continuing on in verse 16, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Keperah, Beeroth, and Kirajirim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. We don't know how the Israelites discovered that the Gibeonites had tricked them, but it didn't take long, just three days. And now they have a sticky situation. So they march off to the Gibeonite cities to take a look at them, but they can't attack because of the treaty. And the people of Israel are not happy with their leaders about this, probably because when they got to those cities, the land looked good and they're like, oh, great. Now we can't have this land. And the thought of the Canaanites living like right in the middle of them, because again, this is just eight miles from Jerusalem. So it's kind of the heart of Israel. It just, it, it looked bad. They don't want the Canaanites living there. The people's grumbling though, reminds us of the Israelite generation 1.0 in in the wilderness. wilderness. However, at the time of the wilderness wandering, the leaders were in the right and the grumbling people in the wrong. Here, the 2.0 Israelites are in the right and the leaders were in the wrong. It's a bit of a leadership crisis. Then the leaders make another mistake. They say, this is what we will do. We is the operative word here. What about God? They just kind of take control. Did they fail to consult him again? 
Would God have done the same? We will never know. The Gibeonites are relegated to the role of indentured servants. This was a role that was assigned to resident aliens of Egypt. Think Egyptians and other people. Resident aliens were, you know, people like the Egyptians who had chosen to leave with Israel, but they weren't Hebrew. And they picked up other resident aliens along the way. But this could be a dangerous precedent that the people from Canaan who were on their harem hit list could be treated the same as resident aliens from outside of the promised land. Remember on the way to the promised land, the Moabites and the Edomites were, God told them not to attack them. So they are not on the harem hit list. It's only the Canaanites who are on that harem hit list. But here we have the Gibeon who are Canaanites, and the precedent is set that they are not going to be killed. Well, because there was a reason that God said they had to kill them all, and it was to protect the Israelites because these Canaanites were worshiping so many gods, it would like pollute them, pollute Correct. their minds. Correct. It was harder for them to not Correct. fall away. But there's a little bit of a sweet story here because the Gibeonites, they become indentured servants and they do serve in the house. Mm-hmm. So, But they're still having influence then on the Israelites. Yeah, Could have been part of the reason why they keep turning away. Mm-hmm. All right, let's keep going. Verse 22. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you while actually you live near us? Now you are under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day, he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place where the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. We love Joshua because he is a man of his word and he did save them from the Israelites. The Gibeonites theatrical performance successfully won them a Lifetime Achievement Award. They actually get to have a life. Granted, the lifetime was not to be spent in luxury in the promised land, but they did survive, which was far better than any other Canaanite tribe. However, they were given a much reduced role of woodcutters and water carriers for the Israelites. Unlike Rahab, they are not grafted in as a member of Israel. Additionally, Joshua places them under a curse. The curse downgrades them from treaty partners that are allowed a specific role in Israel to slaves. They would specifically serve the sanctuary. They would supply the wood and water for sacrificial fires and ritual washing, which we learned in Leviticus season three was no small job. The curse is fitting. They deceived because they feared the God of the Israelites. And so they would serve the God of the Israelites for their deception. As a result of the treaty, the Gibeonites are here to stay in the promised land. In 2 Samuel, much later, Saul breaks the treaty and tries to do away with the Gibeonites. But that ends in the execution of several of Saul's family members because they do have this treaty and they've made this oath. Although their tactics were less than honorable, the Gibeonites bring a face of humanity 
into the annihilation policy of Harem. It seems some of the Canaanites did wish to live in peace with Israel. They weren't all these like, you know, really, really, really evil people. And they were willing to sacrifice their freedom for the chance to live in the promised land. While it was super clear that God intended for Rahab to be grafted in, we're not quite sure that although the Gibeonites wanted peace, that they should be where they are. Certainly we know God is going to use it, but it's it, it was not his first choice. It's one example of how the Israelites really needed your printable about the path yeah, to good and evil. they made the wrong choice. <laughs> What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.